Good morning. Great to see you, most of you at least. Just kidding. Well, I'm, I'm glad you came back. We, we have the chair set up for our uh, celebration of Phyllis tomorrow, and it's nice to see you in there so you can kind of spread out. I know some of you are having anxiety because there's not a table to set your coffee on. If you spill, don't worry about it. Nobody else did, so it's fine. Um, it's all good, but it's good to see you. If you're a guest this morning, thank you for being here. My name is Ryan, the lead pastor here at Crossroads, and uh, it's just great to have you here. If you are here and you're new or, or first time and you have some questions that arise uh, about Crossroads or about myself, happy to meet inside your program is my cell phone number. Send me a text message and love to set up coffee and hang out and hear your story and share a bit of mine and, and Crossroads, all that good stuff. So we're launching a brand new series today um, called A Fresh Perspective got me a little scared. Because um, I don't know if you know this or not, but most people don't like change. They don't like change. And we're seeing seismic shifts in our Christian tradition. And so that's kind of what we're going to be exploring over the next, we'll see how long it takes. Like this is probably a three-part message and a 20-part series. Um, so we're going to see what happens here. But uh, so hang on. This is going to be a bit of a fire hose as we introduce this idea. As we get started, I want to mention that I'm really grateful for two authors, two books um, that really people who in my life through their writing and through their thinking have, have, have brought me a lot of hope in my own journey of faith. I don't, I've come to the conclusion I don't like the word journey of faith. I just used it, but I don't like it. I, I, I'm going to start using the word my own wandering of faith because journey denotes that I'm headed somewhere, right? And I just don't know that that's how faith works. I think we just wander together uh, through all of this, and we see dimly, and that's a beautiful space. So in my wandering of faith, two authors, one is, uh, especially around this topic that I'll, I'll be referring to really throughout this series, as well as a lot of other beautiful resources, but today in particularly, uh, Father Richard Rohr, a Franciscan monk, wrote a book called The Wisdom Pattern. He first, it first came out as a series of tapes, like 30 years ago, and then was put into a book, and it was revised about a year or two ago. It's just a, a, a wonderful book. And then there's a book by um, a, a Jesus historian who passed away a few years ago, uh, one of the great minds of this last century, a gentleman by the name of Marcus Borg, who wrote a book called The Heart of Christianity, Rediscovering a Life of Faith. And so these are two wonderful resources. They're there on your talk notes if you want to know where I'm plagiarizing from. Uh, they're all right there. Uh, and, uh, but if you want to dig into this a little bit more, then uh, by all means, but, but they kind of offer us a little skeleton, a way to organize our thoughts on this big topic. I'm going to ask you a question at your first fill-in. It might be a new word for you if you're a fill-in person. If you're not a fill-in person, you can ignore them. But have you, uh, when was the last time you had an epiphanic experience? Now, some of you don't know how to answer that question. Like, I don't know how to, what does that even mean? Well, I wanted you to learn something new today. Um, so an epiphanic moment, an epiphanic experience, it's related to an epiphany, right? So an epiphany is kind of like a sudden realization that you have. Um, if you've ever seen the Matrix movies, it's like the Matrix moment, the red and blue pill, you know? Uh, you can, there's no going back after this moment. Early in my marriage, I had an epiphanic moment where we were sitting there eating and there were peas on my plate. And I realized in that moment, I am never eating peas again. I don't have to eat peas ever again. I am an adult. I turned over the tables and I eradicated peas from my life forever, right? But it's, uh, it, it's like the world functions one way and then something happens, an experience of thought, and then the next minute, everything is upside down. TikTok handles epiphonic moments like this. TikTok will show videos and it says, I was this many years old when I learned right? And then they show some like hack for your kitchen. You're like, what? 
what? I've been putting the trash bag in the wrong way my whole life. And you can never unsee what you've seen. You can never undo it, right? And I use the word experience with that word epiphanic, like, because sometimes we think epiphanies are like this moment that we have, but I think it's more that we have these seasons, we have these experiences that oftentimes come together and they mature into a moment, right? I, I think that we have these, 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 these things in our life that they just take time. They take time, they have to incubate, and then all of a sudden they hatch. And it might feel like a moment, but the truth is, it was a long series of events. It was a long step, you know, a long path with just steps and directions and different encounters. And then one day, you just couldn't keep living the way you were. And we have these moments in every arena of our life. We have them in our relationships, right? You and your spouse, your partner, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it might be, you're, you're hanging out. And then all of a sudden, you just, you learn something or you realize something and you're like, oh, this relationship is not going to be the same. You have a friendship, maybe. You learn something, you experience, it's just going to be different. This happens in our jobs or our careers, and it even happens in our faith, in the way we think about and understand God. And when we go through one of these moments, they can be small, like my epiphany that I am not eating peas ever again in my life, which is not true. I've had peas since then, but I did it willfully. It was under the spirit of grace and not law, you know? <laughs> There's freedom, freedom in Christ, even in eating peas, right? I do this because it's good for me and I want to, not because I have to, to go to heaven, right? But when we have, we have those little moments, but we have the big ones, the big ones that shift our whole way of seeing and understanding, even the world, right? And we would call that, that moment that's that big, like we would say we're kind of experiencing a paradigm shift, like a new way of seeing the world. And, and this can happen inside of a, a community, a smaller community. It can happen inside of a whole culture, right? It can happen inside of the world, and what's interesting is over the last hundred years, more and more people have been experiencing these epiphanic moments in their experience with the Christian tradition, right? More and more people are experiencing these moments where they say, I can't go back. I can't like unsee that. I can't undo that. Maybe there's an experience of loss or pain or power or, or an, an understanding of the world or history or science. And it's like, wait a second, what I was handed doesn't work. And so now I'm really in this space of tension. And in that space of tension and in these epiphanic moments that are just kind of piling up and piling up, more and more people are becoming dissatisfied. More and more people are becoming disconnected. More and more people are entering into a phase of deconstruction of their faith. And sometimes that can be scary. Sometimes that can be hard. But the truth is that it's happening. More often than not, when I get to sit down with people and talk and have coffee, especially those that find their way into our church, inevitably part of the story is a spiritually dissatisfying reality, that there's a pain, there's a loss. And spiritual disconnection and, and spiritual deconstruction and spiritual dissatisfaction are really the fruit of any religious system, but we're talking about the tradition that we're a part of, of Christianity, really that no longer does a couple of things. And I'm going to give you a whole bunch right now, so just, just keep going with me, all right? Keep going with me. Like, this is what happens. What emerges, what grows in our hearts and our lives when a faith tradition can no longer do certain things. So when a, a Christian understanding, right, when an experience of our tradition, a, a modeling, a paradigm of Christianity that can no longer exist in the compassionate middle, what will emerge is dissatisfaction, 
what will emerge is deconstruction. Because when we're forced to live in a binary where certain people are necessary and certain people are absolutely unnecessary, right? When we can no longer hold space for people who believe and think differently than we do, when we no longer have space for the Democrat or the Republican or the Independent, when we no longer have space for the conservative or the, the, the liberal or the whatever word, but when we live in those binaries, eventually what's going to happen and what we see happening is a deconstruction of that. In fact, that's kind of where the word deconstruction comes from. Uh, a, a French philosopher, he was a, a a grammatician, right? And he developed this idea of deconstruction, which was about kind of digging into binaries and kind of releasing us from that way of thinking, right? Now, Derrida is his name if you're interested in that. It's a super exciting topic, right? But that's where it comes from. There's nothing like intrinsically bad about this idea of digging deeper and deeper into something, right? And here's another thing. When a, a paradigm of Christianity, a way of seeing and understanding the Christian faith, stops being able to hold the necessary tensions of a both-and world, we're going to see people dissatisfied. We're going to see people disconnect. Because our reality is not smooth. Like, there's bumps in the road. We live in a both-and world. We live in a world where the, that requires faith and science. We live in a world that kind of requires an understanding that we are saints and sinners simultaneously. We live in a world that says you have to have faith and works, right? And when a Christian tradition, right, a way of seeing the tradition can't hold that together, when it's just about faith, it's just about works, it's just about the corporate identity and social action, or it's just about personal transformation, it's just about reason, no, it's just about romance, when it becomes those opposites, but we can't hold it together, it's going to produce pain. And it's going to produce dissatisfaction. When a faith can no longer invite people to faith, <laughs> when a way of seeing the tradition is about inviting people to certainty and not faith, not mystery, people are going to get dissatisfied. We're going to deconstruct that. When a, a, when a way of understanding this Christian tradition doesn't balance the metaphors for God and Jesus, when we overemphasize one metaphor at the expense of others, it's going to produce pain. What I mean by that is we have lived in a, in a probably a 200-year period where the, the Christian imagination has been consumed with sin and shame and sacrifice, with substitutionary atonement. Now, these are metaphors that are part of the tradition, but there's also other metaphors that deal with this big idea of salvation. There's wounds and healing, right? There's eyesight and, and blindness. There's all types of metaphors, right? But we, we tend to latch onto one, and when we latch onto one at the expense of others, and that metaphor becomes like a factual reality as opposed to something pointing us to a bigger truth, it will eventually produce dissatisfaction. It will eventually produce deconstruction. It will eventually produce disconnection and pain and hurt. When our view of Christianity, when our paradigm of, of God and the Bible and faith, when it can no longer form inside of people, like spiritually form an alternative set of loyalties other than power, and prestige, and possessions. If, if, a, if, a, if a tradition, a way of seeing Christianity can't actually form that in people, in the followers of Jesus, that understanding, that paradigm will produce pain. Because that's the, the truth of it. If we can't offer a better vision for the values of the world, then why be a part of it? If, if, if our faith just becomes about us having power, and us having the prestige, and us having all the possessions, how is that any different? than a secularized notion of the world that is unenchanted and without meaning. That brings us to another thing. If, if our understanding of Christianity, when an understanding of this faith 
uh, can no longer give people a sense of belonging to a sacred world, a world that is enchanted with something other than, than particles, a world that can't fully be understand, but a world that is infused with meaning. When we can't do that anymore, people will walk away. When it just becomes about the certainty of our dogmas and our facts, and you've got to believe this, and then if you do this, then this will happen to you, it just becomes like voodoo almost. And it doesn't know what to do with our pain. It doesn't know what to do with our suffering. It doesn't know what to do with our doubts. So we just like send them out. We find somebody to blame. But, and when that happens, people will walk away. When our faith can no longer unburden our hearts, <laughs> when there's no longer a radical grace, a belief that there can be union with the divine and with one another, and, and, and instead of unburdening people, we're just burdening them with all the things that you have to, to hold true, no matter what your brain tells you. All these things that you have to say are reality, all of this stuff. Like, but when we, when we heap the burdens on, it's going to produce disillusionment. It's going to produce disconnection. It's going to produce pain and hurt. And when we can no longer communicate the gospel in a manner that provides space for a cosmic and positive vision <laughs> of all that is, of an expanding universe that is continually being created, that right now is expanding, that we live in this little tiny speck of dust in the universe. And if our understanding of the gospel doesn't make space for the idea of something bigger than our own personal salvation or even the salvation of our own species, as we mature in humanity, as we evolve, it's going to necessarily need to be deconstructed. One day, some alien is going to show up on this planet, and if the whole point of God was just to save you, what do you do? Now, some of you are like, I'm never going back to that church again. <laughs> it's a great question, but if your faith can't answer that question, it's not big enough. And when I say faith, I mean the tradition, the explanation, the understanding. It's not big enough for a universe that's constantly expanding. The creation is happening right now, right now, right now, right now, right now. Things that we'll never know, never understand. So it's got to be infused, and the soul has to be at peace in that world, in that universe, in that space. And when our faith, when our tradition no longer allows for an individual follower of Jesus to challenge the corporate body, to a deeper understanding of unfaithfulness, the individual will become disenfranchised. When it's all about a small group of people telling you how to live, how to believe, how to follow Jesus, what it means, and there's no space for the individual to encounter the divine and push back and bring in a beautiful vision in their own experience. It's going to produce deconstruction. It's going to produce pain. And that's what we're seeing happening. And so what's happening and what has been happening and what's kind of the normalcy for Christianity is a paradigm shift. And it's a painful one because anytime there's a shift in a paradigm in our lives, there's always some element of pain. Now, a paradigm is a comprehensive way of seeing something, right? It's a way of seeing the whole. And so the paradigm shift, a way to think about this is, remember when we used to think that the the earth was the center of it all, a geocentric understanding of the universe versus a heliocentric understanding. How many of my, like, science nerds are there? Like, I'm not one, uh, you know, I'm plagiarizing from people. No, but, like, we used to believe this, right? For 1,500 years, we believed it, right? For 1,500 years, we, we built our whole understanding of our existence as the center of the universe. It's like we were teenagers for 1,500 years, 
right? We couldn't imagine a universe that, that we weren't at the center, right? But then all of a sudden comes this guy named Copernicus. And he's like, this doesn't, hold on a second. He's a monk, a mathematician. And he says, I'm seeing the same things you are, but I'm experiencing them differently. So he published this book in 1543, and he said, I think the sun is at the center of it, and it's actually a solar system. And I think that, that we're all moving, <laughs> and the star is staying in place. <laughs> I think the planets are moving. And, and he just brought up something new, and it transformed everything. Like that paradigm shift transformed everything. It transformed the way humanity understood its place in the universe. And how well was that received? <laughs> right? I don't know if y'all know, but we didn't embrace that paradigm shift too well, right? The church felt very threatened by that. Why? Because the Bible says the earth is the center of it all. And so those teachings, those thoughts were deemed as heretical. Copernicus didn't face much persecution because he died shortly after uh, his work was published. Galileo, on the other hand, he faced the Inquisition. He had to recant. Paradigm shifts are hard. And what's fascinating about this is, think about it, it's, the paradigm shift was seeing the same things, the whole, just differently, and it's similar in Christianity, right? We're, we're just, there's a shift that's happening amongst many faithful people who believe in the tradition, who believe in its beauty, but are seeing it very differently, right? Seeing the whole differently. So we're looking at the same phenomena, let's say, of another paradigm that sees Christianity, and what are those phenomena? concepts like the Bible, God itself, uh, faith, Jesus, the cross, words like salvation, seeing the whole differently. It's not just about like simple, like, oh, there's two or three things we disagree with. That's called a denomination, right? <laughs> like a paradigm shift, though. So it's not just about, oh, well, this group wants to sprinkle people for baptism, and this group believes you have to immerse. No, it's a whole way of understanding baptism. It's a whole way of seeing these beautiful things that are part of our history and our tradition and still leveraging them in a way to encounter the sacred, but it's fundamentally a different vantage point, and it's producing conflict. It's very similar, let's say, to how Judaism was dealing with multiple ways of being a Jew in Jesus's day right? We talked about that, if you were with us uh, over the last few weeks before Easter, that there, there were different ways of existing within Judaism. And then Jesus comes along, <laughs> and He's like, how about another paradigm shift? And this one's really going to take the cake. There needs to be an even more fundamental shift around. Because why does Jesus do that? Because Jesus knew the necessity of a paradigm shift if a tradition is going to endure. He knew that there has to be paradigm shifts because the world changes. Humanity evolves. We grow in our wisdom. We grow in our understanding. We grow in our morality. We grow in our way of seeing. Now, I believe Jesus was fully human. To not believe that Jesus is fully human, the traditional church would call that heresy. Now, I've been a part of a tradition that seems to ignore that most of the time. We just tend to go into like Jesus was superhuman and could like do anything he wanted to. But I happen to believe that Jesus was, at the same time, fully human, and yet the embodiment of what it would mean to be fully human and represent God and, and have God incarnate in you. It's, a, it's, it's the mystery of the incarnation. I don't pretend to understand it, and anybody who does, good for them. Now, as a full human, I have to believe that Jesus 
experienced the pain and the frustration of a paradigm shift. Like the historical Jesus, in my understanding, my estimation, I've come to this space to believe that the historical Jesus started off as a disciple of John's. We know that he was baptized by John. And you don't go get baptized by somebody unless you're a disciple of them, like just historically speaking. So something about John's teaching was appealing to Jesus as he grew in stature and wisdom. That's, the text says that Jesus grew in these things. And so Jesus, for a season of his life, understood and thought about things like God, the Jewish scriptures, the coming kingdom, in the same way that John the baptizer thought of them, right? And my guess is that Jesus would have told people, you need to go out into the desert. You need to go to the Jordan River. You need to go get baptized by John. You need to do what John says. John says, repent for the kingdom of God is coming. You need to do it. You need to go out and reenact this, this ancient thing that happened that we celebrate where we crossed through the, the Red Sea and we came into the promise. And well, now you're going to go out to the Jordan River and you're going to get baptized in the Jordan River. And you don't need the temple to have your sins forgiven. Forgiveness is available right there, in the, but it's still forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, that was all part of it. But then he had to come to some epiphany. He had to come into some experience where that shifted in his life because we see a radical difference between the ministry of Jesus, his public ministry, and John's. So somewhere along the way, Jesus came to a space and he said, no, 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 the reign of God isn't coming. The kingdom of God isn't coming. It's here right now. And I'm in it. And you can be in it. And we can all be in it. And it's like a big banquet and party. What are you doing outside? Come on in. Totally different than John. That's why Jesus would say, anyone who is in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John, who's even greater than anybody else, anybody else before, right? It was a massive paradigm shift. And I don't know what the moment was that, that, that caused Jesus to go, John's kind of got it, but not really. Maybe it was John's death. Maybe he saw John's way of gathering people together, constantly confronting and combating the way he was going about it, wasn't going to end well for him. Maybe he believed that. I don't know. I think that maybe the story of Jesus going into the wilderness is all tied into it. That those, these, these like paradigm shifts feel like wildernesses at times for us. When things shift and change, and the way we think we'll accomplish something, we don't accomplish it. If you look at the temptations in that beautiful story, it's like, you can accomplish what you want to get done, Jesus, through these methods. And it's almost like Jesus is going through this paradigm shift and dealing with it. But he makes the shift. And I know that Jesus had to have been dissatisfied with John's teachings. I know he had to have been discontented. I know he had to have deconstructed that paradigm. And he was doing that to the whole of his faith. And that, that is a space that can be lonely and painful and hurt, and it will always lead you to a cross. That I know for sure. And Jesus would talk about it like this in Matthew 9, verse 17. Jesus says, people don't put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the skins burst and the wine spills out and the skins are ruined. Y'all keep your wine and wine skins still? <laughs> Maybe we need a paradigm shift. Maybe we need a new analogy, right? Right, if you, if you put new wine in an old wineskin that's shrunk down and then it expands, it's going to burst and everything's ruined. No, you pour new wine into fresh wineskins. So they both stretch together and they both are preserved. That's Jesus talking about a new paradigm. In Luke chapter 5, the way Luke takes that story of Jesus, he also says, he talks about it like this. Just before Jesus gives the exchange about the, the new wineskin, they come to Jesus, like some of the leaders, and they say, hey, what's the deal? The disciples of John fast, and, and they do that often, and they offer prayers. But the disciples of the Pharisees, they do the same thing, but 
yours, eat and drink. How many of y'all would have just immediately joined Jesus' party? <laughs> like, Let's see, fast and prayer, eat or drink. Uh, fast and prayer, eat or drink is a tough one. <laughs> and Jesus says, oh, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? He's giving an analogy about a space in time. He says, but the days will come when the bridegroom is not here. It's taken away from them. Then they'll fast in those days. There's going to be another paradigm shift. And you're in a paradigm shift right now with me, and guess what? There's going to be another one that's coming. And here's the thing. Like, Jesus never threw away God. He never threw away the Torah. He never threw away the prophets or the law or his traditions. He never threw away Passover or Sukkot. He never threw away the great festivals. He just saw them all differently. He saw the whole differently. Matthew 5, 17, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. One translation says, I've come to accomplish their purpose. Like a paradigm can accomplish a purpose, and then a new paradigm sets in. So Jesus offers this new way to see the whole, and it was desperately needed for his generation. And the whole birth of Christianity was just a massive shift in Jewish paradigm. That Christianity wasn't just born in a vacuum. It was just, originally, it was just another way of being Jewish. You had like Pharisaical Jews, you had Christian Jews, you had, you know, Jews that were part of, you know, the, the Essenes, you had Sadducees. I mean, it was just another way of being Jew. And then circumstances and culture shift. And for many followers of Jesus who were Jewish, that paradigm, that way of experiencing Jesus and worshiping at God and understand no longer worked. And so there was a shift, and Christianity is born as its own separate entity, yet tied into Judaism. And the truth is, the entire history of Christianity is filled with moments that led to and contributed to some sort of major paradigm shift. All right, here's just a few of them in the 2,000-year history of Christianity. Are you ready for this? Hang on. First big paradigm shift happens just maybe, maybe 15 years after Jesus where Paul is converted. Saul is converted, and now he takes this message to the Gentiles. That happens about the year 37. And then a council in Jerusalem convenes a few years later, around 50, and says, hey, guess what? All these new Gentile converts, they don't need to get circumcised. And all the Gentile converts are like, amen, right? Because they don't need to follow the dietary laws. Just got to do a couple of things. So kind of there's this movement away from Jewish tradition and Jewish law within those that are following Jesus. In the year 70, the Jerusalem temple is destroyed, and that's going to shake up everything. A few hundred years later, a guy named Origen starts writing, and he starts talking about deeper meanings in the text. He's later deemed a heretic, but today is considered to be one of the best thinkers of our early church fathers. In 312, Constantine, the then Roman emperor, would be converted a letter would come out by a guy named Athanasius a few, about 50 years later in the year 367 that would define what the text of the New Testament was going to be. That's a shift. In 387, Christianity is made the state religion of the Roman Empire. Jerome completes the Latin Vulgate, which is the translation of the, of the Scripture New Testament into uh, Latin for the people, the Vulgate, the vulgar language of the people. This happens in 405. St. Benedict would write his monastic rule in 540, which we're still doing stuff like that. We just came up with the rule of life here based on St. Benedict. In 622, the birth of Islam happens. The papal schism happens in the year 1500, which splits Christianity in two, into an Eastern and a Western church. You have the Roman Catholic uh, Church, and then you have the Eastern Orthodox Church. 
few years before that, St. Francis of Assisi, he renounces his wealth. In, three, in 1321, Dante's Divine Comedy is written and starts to shape our concept of hell in dramatic ways. The printing press is, is built and comes out, and, and paper starts to get put out there with words on it that people can read. Constantinople, the capital of the Eastern Empire, falls in 1453. It ends that empire. The Spanish Inquisitions begin to start taking place in 1479. Luther, we can all thank Luther. We're all a part of that tradition. He posts his 95 theses on the door in Germany in 1517, and the Protestant Reformation begins. Tyndale publishes his New Testament in 1525, which would eventually get him burned at the stake. King Henry VIII gets frustrated with the Roman Catholic Church around 1534 because they won't annul his marriage. And so he says, get out of our country. And the Church of England is born, and we now have Anglicanism, which becomes Episcopalianism in our context. Around that same time, well, about, about 80 years later, 90 years later, 1630, Galileo is forced to recant his theories of that heliocentric earth or heliocentric universe. None of that nonsense. None of telling us the Bible isn't right, isn't accurate, isn't true. Harvard College is founded in 1636. I had to throw that one in. <laughs> the Westminster Confession is drafted in 1646. Paul Bunyan, how many of you all have read Pilgrim's Progress, writes that in 1678. The Great Awakenings, like they come to their climax in 1740. Immanuel Kant, modern philosopher, one of the great thinkers, writes his uh, treatise on pure reason in, in 1781 that's going to start to shape minds in the modern period. William Wilberforce leads the abolition of the slave trade a few years later in 1807. A guy named Richard Allen is elected bishop of a brand new type of church here in America called the AME, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. That happens in the early 1800s, 1807, 1816, actually. Just a few things are happening. The Unitarian Christianity emerges here in America in 1819. Kierkegaard writes his Philosophical Fragments in 1844, one of the great Dutch thinkers, existentialist. Marx publishes his Communist Manifesto just a few years later in 1848. Harriet Beecher Stowe releases her book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, in 1851. Darwin publishes On the Origin of Species, and that's just a few years later in 1859. The 13th Amendment comes into play and abolishes slavery in America in 1865. All these things are certainly influencing the way in which we encounter and experience and think about Christianity. The First Vatican Council is convened in 1870 and declares papal infallibility for the first time ever. <laughs> we laughed at that. <laughs> Y'all are funny. Guy named, uh, guy named Wellhausen, which you would never have heard of, but he, he came up with something called the documentary hypothesis for how the first five books of the Bible were put together. And that would become like the ground framework for how we got the Pentateuch, Matthew, or Matthew, Mark, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, looking at sources and how the texts were transmitted. And it still holds true. And that happened in 1885. And that shifted the way scholarship thought. He was a German scholar. Shifted the way we thought about how we received the text. The Azusa Street Revival, part of my heritage growing up in a Pentecostal church, took place in 1906 as people gathered on the West Coast to experience God in a new way. Schweitzer's quest for the historical Jesus began in 1906 that same year. World War I started in 1914. C.S. Lewis, any C.S. Lewis fans in the house? C.S. Lewis comes to faith in 1931 and begins his journey and, and influence. 
World War II starts a few years later in 1939. The first Christian TV broadcast, and if you don't think that has influenced the way we think about Christianity, you are living with your head in the sand. The first Christian TV broadcast started in 1939 or 1940. How much did that shape the way we think about it? The National Association of Evangelicals formed in 1942. We dropped an atomic bomb in Hiroshima in 1945. A Los Angeles crusade would compel a young preacher named Billy Graham into the limelight in 1945, and the Dead Sea Scrolls would be found in a cave in Qumran in 1947, which would begin to shape our understanding of our texts and what life was like for Jesus that we never knew before. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was imprisoned and martyred and killed, right, he begins to write his letters, his papers from prison, and they're published in 1951. The Vietnam War began in 1955. Martin Luther King would lead his march on Washington in 1963, and he would be assassinated in 1968. Liberation theology would start to emerge a way of understanding and seeing the God of Scripture as a God who liberates and frees, and it would shape the way we think about certain texts greatly, and that came about in 1968. The Luzan Congress on World Evangelization was convened in 1974 and began to shape how we thought about global missions and missions work. The Moral Majority was founded in 1979 and which shaped American Christian life probably more so than any movement in 150 years. The Internet was born in 1983. The Berlin Wall falls in 1989. The First Gulf War is 1990. As many of you all lived through here in this state, the Columbine school shooting, which really, for most of us, like my generation, marks the atrocity and the tragedy of school shootings happened in 1999. That affects how we think about God. 2001, the attack on the World Trade Centers in the Pentagon took place shifting our world. In 2003, the U.S. Episcopal Church ordained the first openly gay homosexual. That was redundant, wasn't it? should have said the first openly gay man, as bishop in New Hampshire. I was living in New England when that happened. It changed the shape and the scope of the church. The second Persian Gulf War would begin that same year in 2003. A few years later, in 2006, the Episcopal Church would, or, would appoint its first female head of the U.S. Episcopal Church, overseeing it all. Barack Obama would become the 45th president and the first African-American president in the United States in 2008. In 2013, the Black Lives Matter movement would be founded in response to the acquittal of the police officers who killed Trayvon Martin. Sandy Hook school shooting would take place in 2012. The U.S. Supreme Court would strike down all state bans on same sex and offer marriage equality in 2015. Donald Trump was elected the 45th president of the United States in 2016 with 81% of the white born-again evangelical vote. The insurrection on the Capitol would take place in 2021. Roe versus Wade would be overturned in 2022. And last year in 2022, 2022, there were 695 mass shootings in the United States. And here's what I don't want you to miss. <laughs> for, a, for a tradition like Christianity to endure history, <laughs> a paradigm shift is necessary. You cannot possibly, as a thinking person, believe that what we thought about Christianity and about God and about faith when Paul was converted will speak the language of how we think about God in the world we live in today where we had 695 mass shootings and a mass amount of 
Christians saying guns aren't the problem, which is fine. You can say that. I'm not, I'm just saying those are two very different spaces. And truth persists. And the way truth persists is through paradigm shifts. I believe that deeply. Think about it. Within 60 years of the life of Jesus, we still had one gospel, one Jesus, but four according to's. <laughs> we had Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the gospel according to. We had four reshapings and retelling of the stories. And to endure connotates that there is some form of suffering, of negative pressure or weight against something. And the truth always has a weight against it. And if what we believe about the Christian tradition is it's pointing us to a capital T truth, right? It's going to have to. But here's the thing. Those shifts, those paradigm shifts are painful and they're weighty, but they're the first part of growth. They're the first part of wisdom, right? We start off in a place where we think we understand everything. We've got it made. And then we encounter something that wounds us, something that starts to dislodge our security, and it's painful, and it brings about a, a sense of disorder, and it's in that step, it's in that phase that we start to see and experience the spiritual dissatisfaction, the disconnection, the deconstruction. But here's the thing, if we stay in it long enough, if we stick with the wisdom pattern, that wound that we're experiencing, that pain, that hurt, that disillusionment can become sacred. It become a sacred wound. Not just a stupid wound, not just a wound that exists, that we, but it's a wound that transforms us and calls us deeper into meaning, deeper into truth. And this is the first stage toward reconstruction. And paradigm shifts always involve suffering and death and a wound of some sort. Richard War said this. He said, normally the way God pushes us is by disillusioning us with the present mode. I hate that and I love it all in the same moment. <laughs> Basically, he talks about until something falls apart in our world, we will never look for more. Until there's that tension, we'll never dig deeper into the truth. We'll never question the binaries that we've just come to hold so dear. But it's the sacred wound, right? That, that thing that's, all, that's part of all mythological journeys. It's a necessary, painful part of the hero's story. You can't be the hero unless you experience the wound. Think Luke Skywalker. What was his wound? His encounter with his father for the first time cuts off his hand. Man, that'll, that's trauma right there. <laughs> Sorry about that, son. I'm your father. But he has that wound, right? But he has to go through it. It's a part of the mythology. And mythology always points to something deeper and truthful. Maybe you're not a Star Wars fan. Harry Potter fans. Any Harry Potter fans in the house? Right? Harry Potter, he's got a scar, right? A, a lightning bolt right? A symbol of an epiphany. <laughs> and he experiences that, that scar. He gets that scar in a deep wounded moment where his parents are killed in an act of evil, but an act of love. Saved. I mean, it's the gospel. Good night. I don't know why we were so scared of it. Lord, help us all. But this is the great pattern. This is the way of the cross, right? There's life, there's suffering, there's death, right? There's resurrection. Life disorder, order, disorder, reorder. Life, death, resurrection. It's a cosmic pattern. Jesus would talk about it in John chapter 12, verse 24, like this. Unless the grain of wheat dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. It's the principle. It's got to die. It's got to go into the ground. And, and the truth is, the most meaningful things in life, the most important things in life, I've come to believe, and I wish it weren't true. <laughs> but the only way we learn them is through suffering and through loss and through pain. 
I wish it wasn't true, but the deep, deep truths of our world, the realities, the wisdom, there's just certain things that it's our mistakes, it's our pains, it's our losses, it's our sorrows, it's our sufferings that teach us those great big lessons. It's the moments that are the grain of wheat dying in our life. It's the moments of the, Luke, I'm your father. It's the moment of the lightning bolt scar, right? Those are the great teachers in our lives. Those are the moments where redemption is at work. And that is not to say that it is ordained by God or that God wants it or that God causes it. It's to say that it is the pattern of reality, that there is a space of disconnect in the world that it will never go away because in some ways it's necessary for our growth. It's a part of our experience. It's the cry that Jesus gave on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even within this one that we call God, that we say was mega, experienced it. Experienced the disorder. And so what's happening in everyday lives all over the world, and particularly in North America, is a fresh perspective is emerging. A fresh perspective that is saying, hey, I, I can't throw out things that are precious to me. I can't throw out the Bible, it's precious to me. I can't throw out my, my tradition of gathering together and singing, it's precious to me. I can't throw out the cross and Jesus, they're precious to me. They've helped me mediate and understand the divine, but what I've been handed that's a product of the last 200 years, primarily out of the Enlightenment and out of modernity, some of those things that I've been told I have to hang on to, I just can't hold on to anymore, so what do I do? Do I give up on the whole thing, which has been the option for a long time for a lot of people, that I just can no longer exclude people, I can no longer call this person sinner, I can no longer believe that a good, loving God sends people to a, 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 a eternal, tormenting hell. There's all these big questions that people have kind of had the courage to verbalize that they've thought for a long time. And so what's emerging is a paradigm shift. And this paradigm shift is more than a reaction to beliefs. It's just, it's an evolution. It's a saying, wait a second, there's beauty here. And there's an experience of something other than me. And, and here's the thing. Many people, and I don't want to discount this, myself included, many people have benefited greatly from the paradigm that's held strong, that's been the dominant paradigm for the last 200 years. It has shaped lives. It has turned people into people of compassion and forgiveness, generosity. It is not evil. It is not bad. It just doesn't provide what it needs to provide for a lot of people anymore, right? And so we have to recognize that that when we talk about new paradigms, right, this is just because a great deal of people have become disillusioned with that fundamentalist, literalist way and are not willing to walk away from this deep truth. Marcus Borg in his book, The Heart of Christianity, really kind of deals with this idea of the paradigm shift, and he gives us five adjectives, five adjectives and two phrases that kind of help us understand what this shift looks like. And I love these. Basically, he says that this fresh perspective, this new paradigm, is a way of seeing the Bible and the Christian tradition as a whole as historical, metaphorical, and sacramental. So it's historical, that the Bible is a, a product of history of two ancient communities, the Jewish community and the early Christian communities. That's where the Bible came from. And a historical approach emphasizes the illuminating power of interpreting these ancient writings in their historical context. So it's historically grounded. He says it's metaphorical. It sees the Bible metaphorically, by which it goes back to Origen in the 200s, who said there is a more than literal meaning to the text, and that's the most important one, more than factual. 
And so this, this, this fresh perspective, it doesn't really get caught up in asking the question whether it happened or not because the fresh perspective isn't grounded in modernity and enlightenment principles that everything needs to be actually factually proven by science. It doesn't throw out science, but just recognizes what post-modernity is telling us, that not everything is reducible to a scientific principle. There is chaos in the world, and that's built in. And so it says, yeah, let's talk about that. But what does it mean at the end of the day? Like, what's the story saying? What meaning does it have for us right now? So it doesn't get caught up in saying, well, if it didn't happen historically like it, then it must not be truth, which is the way many of us were handed these texts. Like, it's either historically accurate and absolutely the way it is, or else it's nothing. It cannot be God's Word any other way. And there's a lot of us that are going, well, that, wait a second. I never signed up for that. That sounds oddly like a binary. That sounds oddly like black and white. That sounds oddly like polarization. Hold on a second. And then my favorite adjective that he uses that I'm totally going to steal forever and ever and ever until a new paradigm emerges that I desperately need <laughs> is that the Bible is sacramental. We don't use this language a lot in Protestant world. We get weirded out by it, especially like evangelical Protestant world that's our heritage. But sacramental just means that the Bible is a way to mediate the sacred, that we can come to the Bible and experience the divine. So a sacrament is something that's visible and physical, that the Spirit becomes present to us in, that the other, the more, God, what we call God. So it's kind of a way in which we experience grace. It's a vehicle. It's a vessel for the Spirit. It's why so many people find so much comfort in reading the Bible, right? Because it's a sacramental way. There's a sacramental way of understanding it. And then he says about the Christian life that this fresh perspective really is about seeing the Christian life as a life of relationship and transformation. I promise we're about finished. Right, so there's a shift. So the Christian life is not about meeting requirements for a future reward in the afterlife. And this new fresh perspective emerging is not about you know, leveraging these, these resources like the Bible and tradition and dogma and, 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 and things that we're supposed to believe. Like, it's not very much about believing all that stuff just so we can have the right beliefs and, and it's our believing, it's our, it's our understanding and accepting things that we really can't accept because science tells us things. And No, it's moving away from that. And rather, it's a life about a relationship with God. It's a life that is filled with, with like an enchanted world where I'm experiencing the other and, and, my, and that experience, that relationship transforms my life in the present, but also the structures and society that I live in. See, what's wrong with the, the dichotomy of liberal church and conservative church, right, is liberal church does really well on the transformation of society, okay? It sees and understands that the gospel is a social endeavor. Conservative church does a wonderful job on the transformation of the individual, right? It's a both and. What is lacking oftentimes in our experience is a space where our tradition transforms us as individuals, that I experience peace, that I experience joy, that I experience healing, that my life is transformed, but I also am recognizing that it is to push me out into a transformative path in the world, that peacemaking path. So to be Christian, right, in this emerging fresh perspective, it's not believing all the right things. It's living in a relationship, right? And seeing the Christian message as a metaphor to encounter and be in God, in Christ, would be Paul's word for it. And one other thing that's super important here is that neither paradigm, by the way, is the tradition. <laughs> neither one is Christianity. 
There's just ways of seeing it. This is what Borg writes in his book. He says, there's no single right way of understanding Christianity and no single right way of being Christian. Like, we should all say, amen. A lot of blood would not have been spilled if we'd have got this one little statement about a thousand years ago. There's no one right way of being Christian. Of course, there are some wrong ways of being Christian, he says, I love, as when Christianity is used to legitimate hatred, right? Most obvious examples are things like the Ku Klux Klan and white Aryan nation, right? But it's this reality that not one is Christianity, but they're just different ways of being. It's this context that we have to think about, right? This time of conflict that we're experiencing between an earlier paradigm and an emerging paradigm. It's not that either one is right and the other is wrong. Both are just ways of being Christian. So the issue isn't, do I choose the right way to be a Christian or the wrong way to be a Christian? The issue is functionality. Which one is helping me grow the fruits of the Spirit in my life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Which one works for me? Right? Because a, a articulating of a, a worldview, a Christian worldview, like what, what Borg would call the heart of Christianity, I think what, what Jesus, what, what we call the kerygma of Jesus, the like, teaching, his worldview, like, it always involves a given and a context. So for Jesus, what Jesus was given was the Torah, the law, the prophets, the festivals, his Judaism. His context was first century Jewish homeland. Roman occupation, right? The Christian given is the tradition itself. We're given the Bible. We're given Jesus. We're given the cross. We're given our history, all of those things, right? But the context is 21st century Western world life right now. And the, the task at hand, the task in every generation is to develop a good according to right? The gospel according to. And, and, and it's, it, it, that is, that's what we see happening. Whether we want to say that's happening or not, it is what's happening. And it's scary to think about that, but that's the task. The task is to interpret the given and apply the given of a received tradition into the present context. And that's what we're going to do over the next eight weeks. We're going to explore this big idea of God, the Bible, sin, the cross, salvation, born again. Everybody shake that one off a little bit. We're going to talk about these things, the kingdom of God or the reign of God, eternal life. We're going to do it all from this fresh perspective. And I think what we find on the other side of this, right, is an opportunity for those of you who have friends or you yourself are experiencing a disconnect a disenchantment. You're experiencing pain, hurt, loss. You're experiencing, you're deconstructing. But there's something inside of you that says, I just can't give up on this thing that is so beautiful to me and as a part of my story. I think at the end of it, what you'll find is we'll rediscover a faith that we can love and that we can live with confidence. I think that's what will happen. The letter of James in the New Testament says this, Anyone who meets a testing challenge head-on and manages to stick it out is mighty fortunate. For such persons, loyally in love with God, the reward is life and more life. I love that it doesn't say, you know, loyally in love with Christianity, loyally in love with evangelicalism, loyally in love with Catholicism, loyally in love with whatever. It says loyally in love with God, the great other, the thing in which we live and move and have our being, the great mystery. To be in love with that idea and you stick through it is life and more life and more life. 
That's my introduction. Sorry. <laughs> so, Mickey's going to come out. We've got a great song to wrap us up. What is God inviting you into today? In just a moment, our, our room hosts are going to pass the baskets, receive the Connect cards, and uh, you're offering envelopes, giving envelopes, donations. And as you're kind of preparing all that during this song, I just encourage you to take a moment and just consider, what is, why are you here today? Why did the universe bring you here? Why did reality have you sit right here? What is it that's kind of sticking in your heart, kind of like a, a piece of spinach in your teeth? You just can't get it out. You got you to gotta focus on it for a second. Well, there's some ways that you can interact with this material. The first is we ha we're launching conversation groups. And so some of our current groups are going to offer space for people to talk about these topics. They're starting not this week, but next week. At 6.30 p.m. on Thursday nights, I'll be here leading a conversation group for whoever wants to come out. And uh, we have some discussion questions. And if there's three of us, we'll chat. If there's 30 of us, we'll break into smaller conversation groups. But to just give you a chance to, to kind of process through some of this stuff, your own experiences with these topics. And so you could sign up for one of those conversations groups. Maybe the Thursday night group, come out for that. We also are going to do a digital group for those of you that, first of all, Talking about this stuff is really hard, and you'd rather have a sense of anonymity. That's beautiful. You can sign up for the digital online group, and you can interact and, and give your thoughts and share your story in your time when it works best for you. They're also going to do a live Zoom uh, room uh, during lunch, like noon to one on Mondays, so you could do your lunch hour. And so maybe that's a space for you. And, and maybe you're just not sure, but maybe you have a couple of friends who you, you're listening, you're like, oh, I know some, they're like going through this right now, they're living and they don't know which way to turn. Maybe you just want to gather them together and process through this and create your own conversation group. Just check that box and we'll make sure that you get the conversation guide that we're going to be putting out over the next every week, right? Just to facilitate your own Fresh Expressor group. Uh, maybe this really interests you and you want to dig deeper and you'd like uh, to get Marcus Borg's book, The Heart of Christianity. If you check that box, we'll send you the link so you can get real easy on Amazon, but it's right there as well. I love this song that Mickey has. It just talks about truth. Truth comes to us in lots of different ways. And I really do believe that the reason why the Christian tradition continues to experience paradigm shifts is because it encompasses the big T truth. That's why I think all the great religions of the world continue to persist is because inside of them contains the big T truth, a way, a path that leads to God, this path that Jesus embodied. And that's the beauty of it. Truth will always persist, and it always endures, but it, but it shifts. It's paradigm, the way we think of it. That's what makes it beautiful. So enjoy this song. Room host will be around in just a moment, and then I'll be back out.